Welcome to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Traceda, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Dr. Peter Bagshaw, a GP and clinical lead for mental health at NHS Somerset. And we're really pleased to welcome another colleague. And Pakita, you are a friend because you presented at Dillington House in Somerset at a conference a number of years ago. Dr. Pakita de Zulueta. Pakita, very warm welcome to you. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, just to say a little bit about myself. So I am an inner, I was an inner city GP in London for 38 years, and I specialized in um, asylum health, mental health, medical ethics, and also professional education and development, medical education and professional development. Um, I'm qualified as a coach. Um, and mentor, and I'm still coaching and mentoring doctors in the in the workforce. And I also um, uh, I do st- some CBT, compassion focused therapy, and am qualified in EMDR. But I'm not taking on new patients at the moment. But that that's me. So um, sorry, it's a bit complicated. I'm I'm an honorary senior lecturer at Imperial College. And I um, facilitate Schwartz rounds and in the steering group of Schwartz rounds for medical students. And I can explain what those are if if you would like. Well, I think that sounds really interesting. And we'll come on to that in in a minute. What a fantastic range of of skill sets. not just a GP for 38 years, which between us, I think, gives us 120 years of clinical experience. Listeners, we're not trying to pull rank on you. We're just totting up totting up the ages and since we all, uh, we're all qualified at medical school. Um, and um, with a focus on compassion in healthcare, and in fact, that's our title for today, human factors are becoming really important. And in fact, in the GMC guidance for 2024, there's a, a lot more on human factors in, in good medical practice. So Compassion in healthcare. What what is compassion in healthcare, Paquita, and what's your interest in it? Uh, well, just just to start, I mean, there are quite a few definitions of compassion, but but a, a fairly simple one is an awareness or sensitivity to the suffering of another, and a deep commitment to relieve this suffering in, in the appropriate way, in an intelligent and wise way. So it really combines, quite, it's quite complex in that it combines, as I said, the awareness, and that in itself can be difficult if you're under pressure and, and having to do a number of tasks, and then the ability to recognize and understand the suffering of that other person, to be able to, as it were, put yourself in their shoes to a certain extent, so that's empathy, but at the same time retaining the not the understanding that this isn't about me this is about this person and what would it like be like for that person and so with that comes some degree of imagination and a willingness to engage um and then there's that strong motivational component which is actually really wanting and trying to do something to relieve that suffering Um, So I think, yeah, this has been an interest of mine for many, many years. I mean, I think ever since I was a medical student, really, when I witnessed, well, both compassionate and callous behavior towards patients, you know, insensitive behavior. Um, So that's, um, 
I'll just turn that. So that's where it all started. And then looking at how compassion is enacted in healthcare, how we can sustain it, what are the factors that enable it, and what are the factors that, if you like, militate against compassion in healthcare. We know that compassion, now there's more and more evidence, good solid evidence, showing that compassion has a definite positive impact on patient outcomes. And also it is protective, contrary to what some people may think, it is actually protective for healthcare professionals. It actually um, in, uh, prevents them from experiencing burnout and, and moral distress. So you know, we so really, and the other thing is that it's actually economically it it is a good thing. And there's um, a book and uh, an article written on compassionomics showing that if you have compassion in a in a system, it uh, in a healthcare system, it actually reduces costs as well as improving output outcomes. And I don't know if your experience was the same as mine, but. I felt going through medical school that some of the training we had was almost to batter the compassion out of us, particularly if you're going to go into surgery, for instance. You've, you've got to stop thinking of that person as an individual and think of them as a, a, a machine that needs fixing, haven't you? Is, is, that a, is that a problem or is that just me? No, I think, I mean, there is really quite good evidence that empathy and or compassion and we can go into the, there's some disagreement here as to which is which, but anyway, considering empathy as part of compassion, we know that it tends to be to be eroded during the, the clinical years. Um, and it's something about having a huge overload, uh, curriculum overload. It's also something about a much more emphasis on so-called objective features of of um, of medicine, and you know the science rather than the art, and um, you know a lot of factual stuff that you've got to learn. But as well as that, there is the hidden curriculum, which is a lot to do with what you witness uh, from your role models. What are the what are the um, you know the what's the culture. Um, and and students pick up on that. And I that, and unfortunately, it is still happening. When we do these Schwartz rounds, we hear from students giving anecdotes, um, which even in general practice, I hate to say, where they witness um, their, you know, the doctors being um, insensitive, you know, unkind, um, disrespectful to patients and so they get very confused and they kind of uh, begin to shut down and protect themselves um and lose if you like that empathy i hope that answers your question yes very clearly and i think anyone who's uh read adam k's books or or seen uh his will will know that that sadly does still go on can i ask you a, a question do you think compassion is something that we can learn. It seems as though some people are more naturally compassionate than others. Well, I think there are two things to say here. First of all, actually, we are, I don't really like the term, but we are hardwired for compassion. We are social creatures. 
and um, we naturally respond to the suffering of others. It's it's innate in us. You can even see it in in toddlers, um, and that that attentiveness to to another person in distress. Um, but um, so, but you can definitely find there are ways of helping, enabling, facilitating that compassionate ten attitude, if you like, or tendency. Um, you know, we have in our brain something called mirror neurons, which uh, reflect um, the emotional state of another person. We're very, we're very um, attuned, if you like, to recognizing signs of distress, um, even from, as I said, a very early age. So, so it's there, but it's how you can help to develop it and sustain it and and make it even more, if you like, sophisticated, wise. So that leads us on to that question. How do you do that when you're it, it's innate in us? And I, I know uh, with Washoe and so on, it, it's been found even with chimpanzees that they can they can show compassion to human beings. Um, but a lot of us, whether in, we're in the medical field or other fields, we're often in, it seems, an, an uncompassionate uh, system. So how, how do we go about improving our own ability to be compassionate? Well, I think you, you've by the word system, you you've touched on something very important because, I, you know, one can focus on the individual. There's helping people, for example, to be more self-compassionate, to develop the skills and understanding, to befriend themselves, and their self-compassion um, uh, meditation and other ways. Um, so that's one thing. So and helping them to look after themselves so that they can look after others better. So that self-care, but then you have to look at go wider and you have to look at teams. And we know that teams are absolutely integral to the good functioning in hospitals. We know that they can create a culture of safety, psychological safety, which Amy Iverson talks about. And she says it's all about teams. So teams. And then you have to go to leadership, the leadership that's maybe um there's something called distributive or collective leadership, but also the leadership at the top. So, so you have to have compassionate leadership and also as a system that enables people to, to do the, the work in the way that they want to, to be person-centered, to attend to the needs of their patients. And if you have a system which is very target-focused, particularly on sort of economic fact, uh, factors or just other things they can distort the priorities of healthcare professionals. They can um, and create a, if you like, a dissonance of values. And we know that values congruence between this, the organisation you work in and your own values is very, very important for enabling compassionate practice and preventing burnout. Pakita, this is so interesting to hear because uh, uh, we met a number of years ago, but one of the first times I came across your work was uh, an article that you wrote or a paper that you wrote in the Journal of Healthcare Leadership, Developing Compassionate Leadership in Healthcare and Integrative Review, which is 2016. And I can't remember when I saw it, but it had been downloaded 40,000 times by then. So uh, goodness knows how many times it's been looked at since. And I suppose I was struck by one 
one aspect of it is the neurobiology of of compassion and the three systems the affiliative the social and the others and um I'd love you to tell you tell us a bit about that. Um, but can I just first say that um, we've talked a little bit on the podcast about the autonomic nervous system before, and of course, yeah. adrenaline, fantastic for achieving things, but a small dose of adrenaline makes us excited. A bigger dose of adrenaline makes us either anxious or irritable, and of course, it then takes us into severe anxiety or fear, neither of which states are conducive to compassion and when many of us drink tea and coffee which act like adrenaline i wonder if culturally we have a bit of a problem but could you i've sort of anecdotally scratched the surface rather badly of some some excellent work that you've done tell us a bit more about that please <laughs> i like i hadn't thought of the coffee yeah that's interesting um Yes, well, this is really um, based on the work of of Paul Gilbert, who is a, a champion of of compassion. He, he's a psychologist and a founder of the Compassionate Mind Foundation, and um, he describes these three emotion systems, which are, if you like, in the in the brain. So this is a neuroscience. So you have you've mentioned the the fear, the fight, flight, and freeze response that is adrenaline linked in the sympathetic system, which is very good for when you're having to get out of a, of a you know, a dangerous situation um, because it enables you to either run away or to fight the aggressor. Um, and built in from our caveman days when we, um, hunter-gatherer days when we had to, when we were very vulnerable and we encountered predators that were much bigger and, and better equipped than us. Um, so that, and we know that if that system is on overdrive, as it were, um, that it can shut down the other systems, which I'll talk about. So the other system is the um, drive system, which is linked to dopamine and is about achievement. And, you know, we had to go out and find the food and so on. And it's about achievement and, but can become addictive and, um, and is linked to addiction. So it's that sense of, of power, mastery, achievement. Uh, and then finally, but most importantly, we have the compassion system, the affiliative system, um, which is all about that, um, that sense of safeness, not safety, but safeness of warmth, of, of love, of affection, um, and the attachments that we form with each other and of course, which we form as infants with our with our caregivers, um, creating that ability to self-soothe in threatening and difficult situations. Now, quite a lot of people, and I found actually in my work as therapist and coach uh, with doctors, is that they're actually quite low on self-compassion. They're not so they're wonderful at looking after other people, but not so much themselves. They're not good at self-soothing. And can become very distressed. So, so as I said, we they need to be all in balance, these systems. And if you know, sometimes people just go between the fear and the drive and and don't allow for the compassion system to to work as it could and should. Does that I think answer? you're absolutely yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on in saying that doctors are, are good for caring good at caring for others on the whole. I'm really bad at caring for themselves. But can I ask both of you a question? Because, Andrew, I know you're involved in uh, helping uh, 
stressed colleagues and, and burnt out colleagues. There's this talk, isn't there, about um, compassion burnout. And it does seem to be that when we're very stressed or, or feeling burnt out, our ability to show compassion to others gets less. Is is that a, a thing? Can you tell us a bit about that, both of you? Um, so um, thank you, Peter. In, in my work um, um, with, with um, overworked doctors and other health professionals, um, it seems that the stress performance curve comes into play and quite a lot of people are the wrong side of that. They've been on adrenaline for too long. They're probably exhausted. They've moved beyond anxiety and irritability into exhaustion. And there is a phenomenon called burnout, which is a triad of depersonalization, emotional exhaustion and reduced accomplishment. And, and, and personally, I think that actually describes what happens at the right-hand end of the stress performance curve. You're just knackered. There's no fuel in the tank. You haven't put any in yourself for a long time. And so you're unable to give because you've got nothing to give. Uh, what's the answer? I don't think a you know there's no quick fix, but an understanding of the the physiology that took you there and and obviously a, a, a convalescence and taking oneself back to the to the achievable side, the long-term supportive achievable side of the stress performance curve so that we can manage life and we put fuel in our own tank is part of the answer. But Paquita, you know far more about this than I do. So <laughs> could I ask for your insights, please? I don't know about that. I think that no, that's a very nice and very helpful analogy. I think just to just to distinguish a bit, there, there is important research by um, Tanya Singer, who is um, a neuroscientist and a colleague of her, Kimeta, they, Kimeki. They wrote a paper distinguishing between compassion and empathic distress fatigue because um, they did some experiments showing that actually compassion, in fact, is a positive emotion. It is not, um, it doesn't cause distress, but empathic um, distress is when you feel what that other person's feeling. That's, again, the mirror neurons come into it. And you don't have that ability to, 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 to tone that down and recognize actually it's that person suffering, not yours. And so you become very distressed and it's linked to the part of the brain that is linked to pain. So you experience pain and the, the, the automatic kind of response to that is to withdraw and to shut down so that you, you, know, you turn away, you, it's aversive. Does that make sense? So really what they say, it isn't compassion fatigue, but I know it's so commonly used. It's actually empathic distress fatigue. So, um, so that that's just something to say. But it's we also know that there that yes we have, and what happens when people experience this um, that they can't enact the compassion because there's so many barriers to it. You know that that they they're made to do other things which they feel are less important. So that's one thing. So you get then moral distress and so on, and then burnout eventually. Or sometimes there is just so much. I mean, I'm just thinking of those doctors in Gaza, for example, they must be witnessing so much horror, so much suffering, that again, you know, they, it it is difficult to, you just become a little bit of an automate and you just have to focus on the tasks and, and keep going. But you need to have that space and that time to replenish, as you said, to get back on the right side of the curve. Um, and so so that is a kind of exhaustion. Does that make sense? 
perfect sense. So I'm hearing, in a way, that's a very nice way of distinguishing between compassion and empathy. Compassion is something that will flow through us, and it's not of us on our own, unless our tanks are so empty. But empathy is something is a is a is a technique whereby we can understand and relate to another person, uh, and so that's a very useful distinction. Thinking about um, compassion in an organisation, what are the organisational barriers, and how can we how can we help them? And I know they say that how do you change culture one person at a time? So the more each of the three of us and uh, the more our listeners think about compassion and, and de- demonstrate it in our in our in our um, professional and personal lives, the more we are part of the cultural change. Um, and I suppose I just put in one thing at this point, you know, we're, we're sounding as though there is a problem and there is always a cultural problem, but it doesn't make headline news that 56 million people in the UK smiled at each other today. You know, that's never the news and it never makes the news that one and a half million health professionals did their best um, and uh, were kind to their patients. So what are the organisational barriers for Keita and how can we do something about those? Um I, I I I just was reading yesterday a, a paper called The Culture of Compassion, and um their focus was more, well, how can we enable it? And I, I suppose that's a, the the mirror, the mirror image. Um that they point out that health leaders need to create a culture of compassion that actively supports, develops, and recognizes the role of compassion in day-to-day management. And um, so, and I, I've just written, it's it's a sort of impress a, a paper with um, Jeremy Howick, who is a, um, a leader in, in empathy in, in healthcare and on creating empathic systems. And so some of it is, is again, it's about, as we said, looking after the staff, ensuring that they are, you know, that they have the space to, um, to meet with each other, to um, and Schwartz rounds is one example, but it can be just team meetings um, and to support each other, but also that they are able to be, you know, simple things like being fed properly um, so that they can access food, that they can access um, somewhere they can rest and, and um, you know, debrief, and uh, uh, which, again, many hospitals don't have, um, as they used to, staff rooms where people could go and just kind of collapse and talk to each other. Um, so there's that, looking after the staff, but also that that it's, it's very much, you know, that it's supported, that it's there, that it's constantly, that it's rewarded, that people, you know, that leaders and um you know people um show that this is something that they really care about it's of course it's listening to feedback um from patients and and all the time designing systems that enable um compassion work so so it's 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 comp- it's not it's sort of easy in one way, you know, but in another, it actually requires hard work and commitment and dedication and perseverance. So, um, but there are organizations that do this. And then during COVID, there were one or two shining examples of how the staff were looked after, that they didn't have to pay to park their cars, that they that they were given, um, you know, um, food, that they were given um 
that they could get money out from the bank. And, you know, that all these sort of practical things were put in place to make their lives easier. And then there was also message, they could also access um, support when they needed it. There was a phone line that people could ring if they were in distress. So all these things were showing, you know, we care about you and that um, helping staff um, to then care for their patients, to feel cared for and valued for what they do. I know it's a bit of a vague answer and it, you know, we could kind of be more detailed, but that's the, the main thrust of it. And having the the right goals, you know, and unfortunately, um, I went uh, to a conference, which was by the Point of Care Foundation, who are doing a lot of work in this area, and the CEO saying how difficult it was for them um, in the board, because all the time they get these diktats telling them they've got to, you know, they've got to reduce their costs, they've got to, um, um, you know, manage the patient throughput better and so on. And we know that if these targets become, um, if you like, you know, the main the main priorities, that things can go badly wrong, as we saw in the Mid-Staffordshire Hospital, um, uh, where there was, a, the, you know, that terrible scandal and, and so on. So that, and that, when one kind of drilled down, it did show that, um, it was a kind of skewed priorities that led to the culture of fear um, and, and not of safety that created this situation. Hit the target and missed the point, as we've said on many occasions. Can I ask a, a couple of questions, please? One, a specific one. You mentioned Schwartz round, which earlier, which I don't haven't heard of before, so I'd be grateful if you could unpack that. And then as we're coming to the end of the podcast, can I ask you again, you've you persuaded us that compassion is important, that it's a, a good thing, it's protective against burnout rather than making it more likely, and that it's something we should all strive for. So could I ask you again at the end to, to just sum up for our listeners how we can achieve compassion, how we can become more compassionate individuals? Okay, so quickly, uh, Schwartz rounds were set up in in the in the United States. Kenneth Schwartz was um, a, a young lawyer with a, a father of uh, small children. He had a horrible um, lung cancer, um, you know, uh, a, a severe lung cancer from which he eventually died. But what he realized during his care was that um, small acts of kindness towards him, showing interest in him as a human being made what he called the unbearable bearable. And he was also aware that the staff who were giving so much uh, of themselves, what, what was there to support them? So the, a foundation was laid. He, he gave money to set up um, you know, a foundation which would, was specifically for supporting staff. So they came up with this idea, a bit like valent groups, but a bit different, um, in that um, you have a, a, what's called a panel, so you have three people, maybe from a team, so you might have the consultant, a staff nurse, a speech therapist, or um, come together, and they will talk about uh, a patient that really moved them, or or something that that um, something that affected them emotionally, um, and um, the the last Schwartz sound we heard was actually how do we keep going. Um, which was at St. Mary's Hospital. So 
And it's last one hour. It's usually at lunchtime. Free food is any is provided. Anyone can come. It's um, and they will give their story. The facilitators will help them prepare it in advance, five minutes roughly each, and then we open it to the the audience, and they can say how it resonated with them. Very different from a grand round is it looks very much at the emotional and ethical aspects of their work, and then we the panel has the last word, and then we wrap it up. There was a huge evaluation project done, um, NIHR funded, which showed that it improved staff well-being, uh, improved patient care, and gave that sense of solidarity between, uh, you know, the different um, specialties. People recognizing that they all had the shared, shared experiences, shared values, um, and so, so it, it's something that's actually quite resource non-intensive and really quite effective. Um, so, so that's now been rolled out in well over 200 trusts and also pallet, um, hospices, etc. Um, so what was the final thing you wanted me to say? So I think, how can we be, keep compassion? I, I mean, I think everyone can develop their own personal practice, but I think, uh, certainly for me, practicing mindfulness has been very helpful, um, making sure I, do those things that 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 of self care, you know, um, exercise, going out in the in the in, in green spaces, um, good diet, keeping friendships going, etc. All those things that. But as I said, I think it's important that people find their own way of self care, but. So, you know, and developing, befriending yourself, not being too harsh on yourself, recognizing that we are all fallible, um, that we're all vulnerable, but um, we need each other and um, we need to, you know, um, you know, in the end of the day, and I know Paul Gilbert doesn't prove, but it is about love, really, about, about heart and um you know, feet, mind and heart in unison. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, we know compassion is is good for all of us and is very much needed in, in, the, in the world. So you can't have enough. <laughs> you're, you're, you're helping us um, look or reminding us of universal values and i know you have a, a human values in healthcare um, forum which we can put in the in the program notes but uh, I, I worked at guys marsh uh, prison and on the wall it said try to treat others as you would wish to be treated yourself and i think you're quite right love is what makes the world go round <laughs> we, we are designed to be creatures who who are kind to each other and, and yeah. show love to each other we're not designed the other way so thank you so much for sharing and that's been really really interesting thank you peter i would yes it's interesting isn't it that uh, as you're saying these things uh, the the messages that you're giving are the messages that we've heard through dare i say pop culture all the way from the beatles all you need is love through to (laughs) harry styles be kind to other people um and it's lovely as somebody who's always felt that compassion is is absolutely essential to healthcare. Um, but 
slightly hit over the head with targets and so on to hear that no compassion actually is important. So I shall go out with a renewed sense of enthusiasm for that. And uh, I hope we get feedback from our listeners and they'll be equally compassionate to us uh, in their feedback. So uh, thank you very much, Paquita, uh, for a fascinating talk. Thank you. Thank Absolutely. you. It was a pleasure. Thank you, everyone. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Feedback, most welcome. And be compassionate to yourselves as well. Really important. Self-compassion. Yeah. Absolutely vital. Go well, everyone. And bye-bye. You've been listening to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. The show was hosted by our team of doctors, including Dr. Andrew Tresida, Dr. Peter Bagshaw, and Dr. Sarah Coop. The show was produced by Rob Holmes Music on behalf of the NHS Somerset Integrated Care Board.